I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the flow of scripture to help us to determine the things of importance that are being highlighted in the text. For most of us, the book of Numbers, it seems like such a mixed bag. It starts and it ends in a very boring way, with numbers and organizations, and as we'll see in two weeks, interminable lists of offerings. And in the middle of the book are some stories of tragedy that are iconic and they catch our attention, but that are all kinds of depressing. And all throughout these occurrences of boring and exciting, there are lists of commands interspersed. And not simple and understandable commands, but commands that don't make a lot of sense. We saw one last week, the water trial for the woman suspected of adultery. On the surface, the placement of this chapter and the content of this chapter make little sense to a modern person. But what about this week, the Nazarite vow, or the red heifer, or the tassels, or the bronze serpent, or inheritance right for the guy who has only daughters? Why wait until Numbers to talk about the things that accompany each of the sacrifices, the, the grain and the libation offerings? Or why is it only now that we read of the special sacrifices that are to be given on the holy days? Why in the middle of a bunch of stories and lists do we read of how the Levites and the priests are to be cared for? For many of us, this book has no rhyme or reason. It simply seems to be a catch-all for the things that don't fit anywhere else. But as we've begun to really dig into this book and the concepts being explored, we find that there is a flow to this book that can be hard to miss. There is a continuous thread of ideas that are connected together in a very unique way. But discerning this flow can take some searching. So let's go through the flow up to this point and remind ourselves of where we are in the course of this book. In chapter 1, we read of the counting of the children of Israel, the census that was taken for the purpose of warfare, those who were to engage in the process of taking the land that had been promised to Abraham so many years before. Then in chapter 2, we read of how the camp is to be organized, who goes where and how they are to march. These two chapters, while boring, they show us who Israel is supposed to be. Twelve distinct tribes, but all unified by one God and one purpose and all of them following the leading of the Spirit. Every member of the community valuable and necessary. Then in chapter 3, things start to get dicey. In this chapter, we read of the counting of the Levites, not for the purpose of war, but for the purpose of replacing the firstborn in the community, taking the place of those who had the expectation of being the most honored and important, those who were to be the priests and to serve God according to the earthly system. And in chapter 4, we read of the areas of service that these newly chosen servants were to have, 
the areas of responsibility and honor that the firstborn lost. Already we see that there are policies that are being implemented in Israel that are not all that popular. And in the beginning of chapter 5, those policies continue. In this chapter, we read of those who are to be ejected from the camp, and the list runs the entire gamut of honor, from the leprous and diseased and the truly shamed, to those whose only offense had been to show honor to the dead, something that was expected and was seen as honorable in itself. Even those with the honorable task of carrying the bones of their own forefather Joseph would have been sent out of the camp. And the enforcers of these policies, the ones who had upended the natural order by replacing the firstborn, the ones who carried out the policing of the camp to ensure that these things were accomplished, They were rewarded with the contributions and offerings of the people to the point where they replaced the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, if he is not available. And these unpopular policies, well, much later in the book we find that they lead to no end of murmuring, complaining, and outright rebellion among the people. An attitude of no confidence in the leadership, it takes hold and it builds to a head of epic proportions. And so chapter 5 then takes an odd turn. It addresses these topics of jealousy and rebellion, and it does so through the lens of a husband and a wife. The rest of chapter 5 then lays the groundwork for the response that Hashem has when the people do rebel. And it puts the decision of guilt and innocence at his own feet, where there is no proof or evidence of wrongdoing, so that justice can be carried out in human courts. And chapter 5 tends to leave us with a bad taste in our mouth because it's so dark and it seems harsh. It provides a means of justice for the suspected wrongdoer. But the innocent that has to go through this process also has to wait some time before being vindicated. And the false accuser? Well, in this case, they get off scot-free. And the chapter ends with the idea of curses ringing in our ears. And this is where chapter 6 picks up. Once again, we're faced with a section of text that, on the surface, seems disconnected from the rest of what is going on. The hodgepodge of numbers continues, this time now with a confusing aside about a vow that you can take. How does this fit in the flow? Well, first let's read the chapter, and then let's discuss the hope and the consolation that's found in the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman does separate by making a vow of a Nazarite to be separate to Hashem, he separates himself from wine and strong drink. He drinks neither vinegar of wine nor vinegar of strong drink, neither does he drink any grape juice nor eat grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he does not eat whatever is made of the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation a razor does not come upon his head, until the days are complete for which he does separate himself to Hashem. He is set apart. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days of his separation to Hashem he does not go near a dead body. He does not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, or for his brother, or his sister when they die, because his separation to Elohim is on his head. All the days of his separation he is set apart to Hashem. And when anyone dies beside him in an instant, suddenly, and he has defiled the head of his separation, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shaves it. 
and on the eighth day he brings two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tent of appointment. And the priest shall prepare one as a sin offering and the other as an ascending offering, and shall make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body, and he shall set apart his head on that day, and shall separate to Hashem the days of his separation, and shall bring a male lamb a year old as a guilt offering. But the former days are not counted, because his separation was defiled. And this is the Torah of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are completed, he is brought to the door of the tent of appointment, and he shall bring his offering to Hashem, one male lamb a year old, a perfect one, as an ascending offering, and one ewe lamb a year old, a perfect one, as a sin offering, and one ram a perfect one, as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened thin cakes anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before Hashem, and prepare his sin offering and his ascending offering. And he shall prepare the ram as a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem, together with the basket of unleavened bread. And the priest shall prepare its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of its separation at the door of the tent of appointment, and shall take the hair from the head of its separation, and shall put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, and one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened thin cake, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his hair of separation. Then the priest shall wave them, a wave offering before Hashem. It is set apart for the priest, besides the breast of the wave offering, and besides the thigh of the contribution. And afterward the Nazarite shall drink wine. This is the Torah of the Nazarite who vows to Hashem, the offering for his separation, and besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide. According to the vow which he takes, so he shall do according to the Torah of his separation. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is how you bless the children of Israel. Say to them, Hashem bless you and guard you. Hashem make his face shine upon you and show favor unto you. Hashem lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Thus they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I myself shall bless them. The Nazarite vow, along with so many other parts of the book of Numbers, it's a topic that leaves more questions than answers. Nowhere in the Bible do we find what is expected of a Nazarite, what their duties entail, how this special vow of dedication benefited those who took it. In fact, there's very little said about this vow other than the rituals that the person who took the vow were to go through. And that is the majority of what we're reading in this chapter when a person does separate by making the vow of a Nazarite. Now, the Hebrew of just this second verse is interesting because it contains a lot of ideas that aren't present in the English. So the first part of this verse is not all that special. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, man or woman, is the most literal rendering of this first part of the verse. And it's the second part of the verse that things get interesting. Ki yafli. Ki is easy. This is a catch-all preposition that can mean a huge list of things in the English. It can mean that, for, when, because, and more. But in this case, when is probably the best. Then comes the word yafli. Now, in the English, this word simply translates as special. But the word it means it means more than just special. This word means to be marvelous, wonderful, extraordinary, or separate by distinguished action. This is not just a separation of any sort. This is not just a vow of any sort. 
This is an extraordinary and a marvelous vow, and it's one that distinguishes a person. And those are the next two words, both the verb and noun form of the word vow, when you vow a vow. Now, following these two forms of the word vow, we find two forms of the word nazar. Nazir, la hazir. Now, these are two different words, but one of them is the root of the other word, and so it can help us to perhaps get a hold on what this vow means. The first word is the word nazir, and this is the word that's translated as Nazarite, one who is separated by their vow, or the status that one takes on when they make this special vow. The root of nazir is the next word, which is nazar. Now, this word means to be dedicated or consecrated or indeed separated for something. Now, does this help? Yes, in some ways, because the root of the word nazar is separate or consecrate. So the Nazarite is one who is separated from something or consecrated for something. And we see this a little bit clearer in another place. In Genesis 49, 26, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the limit of the everlasting hills. They are on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. Now, the word used as separated in this verse is not nazar or separated. It is nazir. It's the same word translated as Nazarite, the one who is separated. And in the context of this chapter, the idea of separate seems to be the most accurate because this is what's described as the Nazarite's duties. They are to be separate in several distinct ways. They are to be separate from wine and strong drink, not just strong drink, but anything that's been fermented at all, including vinegar. In fact, they are to be separate from all grape products as well. They are to be separate from the razor, and their head is not to be cut during this vow. And they are to be separate from the dead. These are the three primary areas of separation that the Nazarite is to engage in. And what do these three things have in common? More pointedly, who have these three areas of separation been applied to already, if only in a limited way? The priesthood. Separation from strong drink. Leviticus 10, 9-10 says, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of appointment, lest you die. A law forever throughout your generations, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. The priests were to be separated from strong drink while in service. So the Nazarite is separate at all times. Also, there's to be a separation from cutting their hair. Leviticus 21, 4-5. A leader, it's a priest in the context of this passage, does not defile himself among his people to profane himself. They do not make any bald place on their heads, and they do not shave the corner of their beard, and they do not make a cutting in their flesh. And there is to be a separation from the dead. Leviticus 21, 1-3 And Hashem said to Moshe, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one is to be defiled for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, for his mother and his father, and for his son and for his daughter, and for his brother and his maiden sister, who is near him, who has no husband. For her he is defiled. 
Each of these forms of separation is one that was applied to the priest in a limited capacity. But for the Nazri, these separations are taken to a whole new level. Complete separation from these. No interaction at all, rather than the limited interaction that was allowed to the priests. Now, these correlations would seem to indicate that the Nazarite vow is a vow of dedication that a person can choose that will allow them to be dedicated to God in some special way. And in doing so, they take on a priestly role of some sort, even though they're not a son of Aaron. And in my mind, this is confirmed by one of these special separations. Throughout the chapter, we read that the separation is on his head. Number 6, verse 7 He does not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. And Numbers 6, 9, And when anyone dies beside him in an instant, suddenly he has defiled the head of his separation. Then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shaves it. And this idea is explored in several other places as well. Compare this to the description of the high priest from Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, 10-12 And the high priest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is ordained to wear the garments, does not unbind his head, nor tear his garments, nor come near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor go out of the set-apart place, nor profane the set-apart place of his God. For the sign of dedication, that word dedication, nazer, of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am Hashem. In this verse, the single word that is translated as the sign of dedication or consecration or whatever your translation has, it is the word Nazar. For the Nazar of the Mashiach Shemen is upon him. If we translate this word consistently, we would read, for the separation of the anointing oil is upon him. The separation is on his head. Or alternatively, we could read in this chapter that the consecration to God is on his head. And as the final censure, when we read of the sacrifices that the Nazarite was to offer, we find that they are the same sacrifices in the same order as the ordination ceremony of the priests. This time, instead of there being a bull for the sin offering, though, there is a ewe as the sin offering. And this time, rather than at the beginning of their vow, the sacrifice was offered at the end of their vow. The vow of the Nazarite is indeed a vow that took a common person and allowed them to dedicate themselves to God in a special way, a way that's similar to the dedication of a priest to Hashem. And in Amos, the Nazarite is used as a comparison to a prophet. Amos 2, 11-12, And I raised up some among your sons as prophets, and some of your young men as Nazarites. Not so, O you children of Israel, declares Hashem. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophet, saying, Do not prophesy. Now they're used here in comparison, not, I think, in the idea of them having a similar role, but that the people were convincing those who had been raised up to these positions to not live out their calling. So what does this mean for the practice of the Nazarite? I have no idea. No one does. There is ample speculation as to what kind of duties one could expect from taking this sort of vow, but there is nothing concrete, either in the Bible or in Jewish literature. 
All we know is that the one who takes this vow is holy to Hashem all the days of the vow. Numbers 6 8. All the days of his separation he is set apart to Hashem. Now, this raises a number of questions because we read of only a couple of Nazarites in Scripture. First off, there's Samson, Judges 13, verse 5. For look, you are conceiving and bearing a son, let no razor come upon his head. For the youth is a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And then Judges 13, 7. And he, and he said to me, See, you are conceiving and bearing a son, and now drink no wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean food. For the youth is a Nazarite to Elohim from the womb to the day of his death. And this dedication of the Nazarite, it was declared by an angel. It was imposed upon Samson by another. The entirety of the prohibitions of the Nazarite are applied to Samson but one. The prohibition of becoming defiled for a dead person. See, Samson was a warrior. He killed a lot of people. He was definitely, throughout the course of his life, defiled for the dead. I mean, just take Judges 15, 14 through 15 as an example. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of Hashem came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and struck a thousand men with it. How can Samson be a Nazarite and not be defiled for the dead? Then there's another possible, and I stress possible, Nazarite in Scripture. One that never actually has the term Nazarite applied to him. 1 Samuel 1.11 And she made a vow and said, O Hashem of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your female servant and remember me and not forget your female servant, but shall give your female servant a male child, then I shall give him to Hashem all the days of his life and let no razor come upon his head. Now the vow that Hannah takes in this passage is a vow of dedication to Hashem. It's a lifelong vow, just as with Samson. And it is a vow that was imposed upon Samuel by another. This time, not an angel, but rather his mother. But the vow never says Nazarite, and nothing is ever said of whether or not he could drink wine. Now, it is assumed, though, that the declaration of dedication to Hashem and the vow to never cut his hair is simply a way of referencing a Nazarite vow. But Samuel, just as with Samson, never has the stipulation of being defiled for the dead placed upon him. 1 Samuel fifteen thirty-two through 33 And Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him delightedly, and Agag said, Truly the bitterness of death has turned aside. And Samuel said, As your sword bereaved women, let your mother be bereaved among women too. Samuel then hewed Agag to pieces before Hashem in Gilgal. Now, there's another Nazarite, that's uh, John the Baptist, but I'm not going to get into him today because, uh, again, his was imposed by an angel. He's never really called a Nazarite, it's just said that he shouldn't drink strong drink. Now, these Nazarites that we read of in Scripture, they're lifelong Nazarites. And they're all Nazarites at the wish and dedication or the vow of another. And they defile themselves for the dead. Why? Well, I believe that this is something that arises from a matter of practicality. The Nazarite vow that is described in this chapter is one that's taken by a person and applied to themselves. 
It's not one that is to be made on behalf of another. Second, the vow in this passage is one that has an end date. There is no allowance for a person to take a self-professed, lifelong Nazarite vow. There is to be an end to the vow. Third, the fact of the matter is is that no person can avoid the defilement of death for their entire life. It's impossible. And so for the lifelong Nazarite that has the vow imposed upon them by another, there is no stipulation of avoiding death. There can be no stipulation of avoiding death. The vow is lifelong, and are they going to shave their head and start over if they come in contact with the dead? Uh, but this uh, this example, specifically the one with Samuel, it also reveals something of potential importance. Samuel is from the tribe of Ephraim, and yet Samuel is allowed to enter and to serve in the tabernacle as well as to wear an ephod. Now, was this a side effect of his being a Nazarite? Were other Nazarites allowed to enter or to serve in the tabernacle grounds alongside the Levites in some way? Was this a side effect of only the lifelong Nazarite vow? Could Samson have gone and served in an ephod in the tabernacle? Or was this a side effect of a young child being dropped off at the tabernacle by his parents, and so this became the only practical way to keep him? Just raise him up in what we know. Uh, Frankly, we can't know. Because of the distinction made in the area of defilement for the dead, we can know that there were exceptions made in the case of these two men in the Hebrew Scriptures who are the only two who we know of being Nazarites, and one of them is suspect on that front. And this closes off the section on the Nazarite vow. Next in the text we read of what has become called the Aaronic Blessing. Why the Aaronic Blessing? Well, it's because the sons of Aaron that were to speak this blessing over the people. This is the blessing that I speak every week at the end of my local community service. Now in the Hebrew, the poetic structure of this blessing is really cool. The blessing is composed of three lines in the Hebrew. The first line has three words. The second line has five words. And the final line has seven words. So not only does each line increase the number of words from t- by two, from three to five to seven, but then the number of letters in each line is also increased by an order of five, from 15 to 20 to 25. And the entire blessing is composed of 60 characters. Each line of the blessing contains the tetragrammaton, the proper name of God. Now, does any of this have any meaning behind it? Well, uh, trying to discern meaning from it Uh, It smacks too much of gematria for my tastes. But there is a poetic literary structure of this poem, and it is amazing all on its own, just that structure. In any other format, this would be seen as an exquisite piece of poetry, if nothing else. And yet, it's so much more. The blessing itself is something that we could spend quite a bit of time on. So let's go through it quickly and then examine how the meaning of this poem is also a work of art. It's a work of art that has power. As we go through this, notice that in each line there is an action taken by God, which then results in an outcome for Israel at the end of the line. The first line, Yevarechecha Hashem Vayishmerecha. May Hashem bless you and keep you. 
Now in Hebrew, each of these words has a concrete meaning. What does it mean to bless? Well, bless is ephemeral. What is the concrete meaning of bless? Well, the concrete meaning of this word, barach, is to kneel. To kneel before someone for the purpose of giving honor to them. Usually this is in the form of the worshiper kneeling before the one to be honored or to be worshipped. Uh, such as Psalm 95, 6, Come, let us bow down and bend low. Let us kneel before Hashem, our Maker. Well, in this case, in this blessing, it is Hashem that is kneeling before His people. He is the one who is bestowing honor upon His people. Alongside this, the third word of the blessing is to keep you or to guard you. And this is a military term, as we've talked about before, to watch over or to protect. And this is the idea behind a blessing. It is the giving or bestowing of honor upon another. Now, we often see it as being on the receiving end of good fortune, but that's not really correct or accurate. It's being on the receiving end of being given honor from another. So the first line contains Hashem on his knees, bestowing honor, protecting from harm. The second line is this, Ya'er Hashem penavelecha The first word is Ya'er. It's the word or, it means light. It was this that was created on the first day. Or, it's this that enlightens, that drives back darkness, that illuminates. Then there's the name of God once again. The third word is the word panav. Now, this is the word for face or panim. When the word, now, the word face is the concrete meaning of this word. The abstract meaning then being that of being in the presence of someone. In the ancient Near East, it was thought that the eyes created their own light. And that's why we were able to see. This is attested to in various medical texts of later centuries, as well as in the New Testament. Matthew 6.22 says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, all your body shall be enlightened. So if someone's face is towards you or shining on you, then not only are you in their immediate presence, but their attention is focused right on you. And the result of having the light of God's attention turned towards you? Grace. Favor. Chen. Now, we're often told that grace is a New Testament ideal, but it is not. We've seen it over and over and over. And grace is the central idea of this blessing. The grace of God will be directed towards his people because of his presence and because of his attention on them. The third line of the blessing is as follows. Yesa Hashem shalom. The first word of this line is a form of the word nasa, to lift up or to carry. Uh, but it can also mean to bear a burden. Once again, it is the face or the presence of Hashem that's being lifted upon Israel. His presence is not just shining. It is lifting upon us or perhaps carrying on us, attaching to us, going with us. And this line finishes with Hashem putting or setting or placing peace to his people. So not only is the attention of Hashem on his people, but his presence is to go with us. Each line is Hashem acting in some way towards his people, giving honor, 
giving attention, bestowing his presence. And the result of each line is a benefit for the people of God. There's protection, shamar, the task that Adam had in the garden. There's grace. This is the gift of a patron to a client to equip them to do their work. And shalom, peace. But shalom is more than just peace. Shalom is wholeness. It's completeness. It's absolute welfare. And this is the blessing that is to be spoken over the people of God. This is what God wants for his people to have. Now, when we recite this blessing, we often precede each line of the blessing with may, as if it's our wish for this to happen. But maybe it won't, so don't get your hopes up. I tend to do this when I say the blessing in English. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and so forth. Well, the idea of the blessing containing a list of wishes that God wants to give us but might not, uh, it's not there. Each of these are declarative phrases of what God will do for his people. Hashem bestows honor to you and guards you. Hashem puts his attention on you and be gracious to you. Hashem carries his presence with you. And to you, shalom. This is what Hashem commands to be spoken for his people. This is his desire. And in verse 27, we read that in this, the name of Hashem will be placed upon the people of Israel. Yes, the proper name of Hashem is placed on the people in the course of this blessing. But there's more to it than that. The character, honor, power, reputation, and more of Hashem is to be placed on his people, and his presence is to go with us. This blessing is not only a literary work of art, it is a poetic masterpiece of ideas. Hashem acting towards his people for their good. So let's return to what I opened with before we close. The flow of the opening of the book of Numbers continues through this chapter from the previous. In chapter 5, we left off with the idea of jealousy of a husband for his wife and adultery, idolatry in the hearts of the people. Some of the policies that were being implemented were contrary to the ways of the world. Some were not very popular or welcome. Changes were happening, and they were happening too quickly for some to handle. Rather than change, they wanted stability, and they wanted blessing now. And into this is spoken, the warning of the previous chapter. If you go chasing off after another spouse, another god, or another way, you will end up cursed and cut off from your people. But then comes this chapter. And I believe that the primary audience for this chapter is the firstborn, those who had been passed over and exchanged for the Levites. And it's a message of hope. You have not been rejected entirely. You can still serve me if you wish. You can dedicate your life to me. If you wish to serve me, it will be because you love me. Not because you're owed it. Not because you deserve it. And not because it's your place. Not because you gain power or honor over others. And definitely not because this is just the way that things are done. If you wish to serve me, it will be on my terms. And it will be because you have chosen to serve. And this service, it will be an act of distinction and blessing. But it's a service that will cost you some of the simple pleasures of life. 
You wanted to serve as a priest? Well, the priests of Hashem do not get land. Their inheritance is Hashem. If you wish to dedicate yourself to Hashem, then you will have to give up something as well. And you will have to take up the restrictions that have been placed on them. And you will have to live as if you yourself were a priest. And in this, the warning and the curse from the last chapter, it's blunted a bit. The shame that the firstborn would have felt by being replaced by the Levites, it's being lessened and smoothed out. You can still serve, but now it's going to be with a proper motive. And this is available to all, not only to the firstborn. Regardless of whether you choose to dedicate yourself to me through a wonderful vow of separation, regardless of that, you're going to be blessed. You will all be blessed. And that blessing, that giving of honor will come only because you bear my name, because you are my people. And this is the call that we can all engage in. Not a Nazarite vow specifically, because we cannot end the vow in the proper way. But in dedication to God out of a pure motive and with a pure heart. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, So, brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and a living way, which he instituted for us through the veil that is in his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in completeness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a wicked conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. We are to be dedicated in service to our God. This is not something that is only available to a few. This is something that is available to all. We are all part of the body of Messiah, and we can all dedicate ourselves to his service. And that dedication it comes in the form of self-denial. Matthew 16.24, Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not a denial of the grape or fermented drinks, but a denial of our entire self. A denial of our lives. The Nazarite vow is what it took for a layman to be elevated to at least a semblance of the priesthood in Israel. A denial of our very selves is what it takes for us today to be elevated to the role of disciple. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, can we do it? Can we deny ourselves for his sake? Can we deny and delay pleasure or food or strong drink? Can we deny that our very lives are our own? Can we remain pure from things of darkness and death? Can we continue with the dedication of God on our heads? For this is what discipleship costs. The Nazarites were asked to deny themselves. The priesthood were required to deny themselves. Can we follow their examples and live our lives wholly dedicated to God? Because that is our calling. And through this, dedication of our whole selves to Hashem, we can find life. So Dereshchai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom.
Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.